You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On Saturday, October 15, 1983, a trapper checking his fox traps in a fallow farm field in rural Jasper County, Indiana, stumbled on a partial skull. He turned it over and wondered whether it was a monkey skull. He called the Jasper County Sheriff's Office around 9 a.m. Sheriff's deputies and Detective Paul Ricker, as well as members of the Indiana State Police, arrived at the field, located off County Road 100 West, a quarter mile south of Buncombe Road, about 1.5 miles west of Rensselaer. Detective Ricker later said, quote, I was the first one to go to the field. Five feet from where the trapper had found the larger portion of the skull, Ricker found the rest of the jawbone with fillings. These remains were no monkey. They were human. Detective Ricker later said that he poured over that field during every minute of daylight over the next two weeks, collecting nearly 30 bone fragments. They also found scraps of clothing and personal items believed to belong to a young person, Coroner Stephen Spicer commented. One of these was a lighter, a metal zippo with the name Marlene on it. But they found no wallet or ID that could help them determine who the remains belonged to. Investigators found evidence, long auburn hairs, that indicated that the person whose bones lay in the field might have been tied to a tree. The victim was believed to have been killed there, and been buried in a shallow grave. More of these hairs were found with some of the bones and clothing, indicating that the doe had had shoulder-length reddish-brown hair. Each of the bone fragments and the personal items were documented and photographed. The location of each of the items within the field was measured and recorded based on their location proximate to a utility pole at the corner of the field. The human remains were sent to forensic pathologist John Pless at the Indiana University Medical Center in Indianapolis. Dr. Pless determined, based on the size of the pelvic girdle and other observations, that the remains were from a white male who was 18 to 26 years old. The man had died by stabbing, and the manner of death was homicide. I have to admit, I'm not certain how Dr. Pless determined that the John Doe had been stabbed, as he told the Journal and Courier, quote, the Jasper County body was more decomposed primarily because the field was plowed over, end quote. It's hard to imagine he could see knife marks on the skeleton if the body had been violently unearthed by the metal teeth of a farmer's plow. Animal predation had also been cited as a reason the bones were so scattered. But Dr. Pless would prove to be correct in his determination of stabbing. Dr. Pless and the Jasper County investigators determined that the body had been in the field for at least a year, Some additional, very specific details were made publicly available. 
The John Doe was approximately five foot six to five foot eight inches tall and of slight build. He had broken his left femur sometime within four years of his death. He had crowns on the back teeth of his lower jaw, with stainless steel caps on teeth numbers nineteen and thirty, and amalgam restorations on teeth two, three, and twelve. Oddly, one of the amalgams was installed backwards, an oddity that was hoped could help give the John Doe a name. Clothing connected to the Doe included a gray hooded sweatshirt, Levi's jeans, a brown leather belt size twenty-eight, bits of gray burgundy socks. And what appeared to be suede and vinyl athletic shoes with a crepe sole, size eleven and a half. There were no missing persons in Jasper County who fit this description. Authorities reached out to surrounding counties via teletypes and phone calls, and while those other jurisdictions could not identify the doe, the Jasper County authorities quickly learned some important information. The Journal and Courier reported in November 1983, a month after the Jasper County doe was found, that the deceased male quote. Might be linked to homosexual murders in Indiana and Illinois. End quote. Well, the terminology is questionable, but the theory was sound. Three days after the Jasper County Doe was found, four other dead young men were found by mushroom hunters, stabbed and buried in shallow graves in the dirt floor of an abandoned barn at unused Churchill Farm in Lake Village near U.S. Forty One in Newton County. Three bodies were buried near each other, and the fourth not far away. All four of them had their pants pulled down to their knees. The Jasper John Doe was too scattered and his clothing too shredded to know whether his pants were down as well, but the M.O. appeared similar, and Rensselaer is only 15 miles from where the four other bodies were found. Doctor Pless had noted the similarities because he had performed the autopsies on each of the other four men. They were all within the age range of 19 to 30. Like Jasper County Doe, all had been stabbed multiple times. They had all dined within months of each other. Hundreds of people called from all over the country when the ISP broadcast the dose, and that they were seeking help identifying them. And investigators quickly identified two of the four victims found together in Newton County. One was 23-year-old Michael Bauer of Chicago. The second was 19-year-old John Bartlett, whose sister had reported him missing after he failed to return to the Chicago apartment he shared with her on March 7th. The third and fourth remained unidentified, as did the Jasper County Doe, who it was suspected was related, but this was far from certain. Indiana authorities soon acknowledged that these five victims found in Newton and Jasper counties were just the tip of the iceberg. The Indiana State Police were investigating a total of nineteen deaths, all with substantially the same circumstances: young, primarily white men who had died after being stabbed. And were found with their pants down after being hastily and clumsily buried all within the past year. Oddly, one victim wore multiple socks that police theorized had been removed from the feet of one of the others. Many were missing their shirts and wallets and bore signs of aggravated assault. As the Journal and Courier reported, quote, "Police found most of the victims with their trousers pulled down to their ankles in shallow graves along major state or interstate roads in Illinois or Indiana." End quote. By the spring of 1983, a special unit had been designated to investigate the murders, and included detectives from Indianapolis police and each county where a body had been found that they suspected was the work of the same killer. The multi-agency task force was named the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team, and was led by Lieutenant Jerry Campbell of the Indianapolis Police. This from Medium quote: 
the task force had decided to call the serial killer the highway murderer because the bodies had been mainly discovered along the interstate between Illinois and Indiana, and most of the bodies had been dumped in fields or other rural areas just off these roads, end quote. The task force members suspected that their killer was conflicted about his sexuality, suffered from guilt and remorse about homosexual tendencies, and lashed out at his victims to vent his rage. And pretty soon, they had a good idea who he was. The task force received a notification on September 30, 1983, after a man had been arrested on a routine traffic stop. A non-consensual search of his truck revealed nylon rope. His vehicle had been searched after the man's passenger, a hitchhiker, told the officers his captor had propositioned him and he was being abducted. The truck was impounded and the driver questioned. His name was Larry Eiler, and he fit the profile of the killer the task force was seeking. Furthermore, he commuted back and forth at the beginning and end of each week along a highway-heavy route that mirrored the locations where many of the bodies had been found. And the task force had received a tip from an ex-lover of Eiler's, that he had stabbed a man named Craig Long in 1978, and he was sexually violent. Let's take a look at Larry Eiler. Larry Eiler might be one of America's most prolific serial killers. He confessed to between 20 and 24 murders of boys and young men, but some believe he killed closer to 50 in Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and perhaps other states. Like many serial killers, Eiler had a rough childhood. He was born Larry William Eiler on December 21, 1952, in Crawfordsville, Indiana, to Mom Shirley and Father George. Larry was the youngest of four born to the family. He was very close with his sister, Teresa. George was an alcoholic who regularly beat and abused the children and his wife. Shirley left him when Larry was just two, but she had to work multiple jobs as a waitress, factory worker, and bartender to try to provide for the four Eiler kids. As a result, the Eiler children were left alone or placed in foster homes much of the time. When they were in the home, things were even worse. Shirley was married four times, and two of Eiler's stepfathers were abusive alcoholics who burned the kids with hot water and abused them in other ways. Young Larry attended St. Joseph's School in Lebanon, Indiana, where his teachers liked him. He was quiet and, though tall and sporty, was picked on by other kids because he was poor and his parents were divorced. His sister, Teresa, stood up for him, cementing their bond. He struggled, and his mother had him assessed by a psychologist who diagnosed him as having abandonment issues and severe insecurity and anxiety. In 1963, he was sent to a boy's home, but returned to his mother's house after six months. At some point during his teens, he recognized that he was homosexual, but was tortured with hatred of himself. Eiler attended South Putnam High School, but never graduated, although he did obtain his GED. After that, he took up a series of jobs, including working at a liquor store and a shoe store. He enrolled in some classes at Indiana State University in Terre Haute, and there, in 1974, he met Robert David Little. Little was a 38-year-old library science professor. Soon, Eiler moved in with Little, a gay man who became like a father figure to him. Eiler would bring home sex partners to trade with Little, but the two were not sexually involved. In Indianapolis, Eiler frequented gay bars and clubs and met many people who considered him charming, friendly, and easygoing. He was popular in the gay community he patronized, was into bodybuilding, but was also involved with a group of leather fetishists and men into bondage. He started to become violent with his sex partners. 
Men he slept with said he would turn on a dime, inflicting pain on them, beating them, even using a knife to inflict shallow wounds. Sometimes he would shout expletives at his partners, intimidating them. His aggressive behavior escalated, and he started wearing U.S. Marine Corps t-shirts and other military-style clothing, even though he was never in the Army. It was during this time that he abducted Craig Long. Eiler first caught notice of law enforcement when, on August 3, 1978, a 19-year-old stabbing victim named Craig Long told paramedics that he'd been attacked by a man who picked him up hitchhiking. The man, Larry Eiler, had propositioned him, and when he refused, Eiler threatened him with a knife and made him strip and handcuffed him. Craig managed to get out of the truck and run, but Eiler chased him, yelling, You queer! He stabbed Craig in the chest and left him for dead. But Craig survived with a collapsed lung and crawled naked to a nearby farmhouse and was able to summon help. Oddly, Eiler showed up as the paramedics were working on Craig and said he had stabbed him by accident. Police searched his car and found various disturbing weapons and tools, such as swords and knives, handcuffs, a whip, and even tear gas. Eiler was arrested for aggravated battery, but was released after his friends raised the $10,000 bond to secure his release. While trial was pending, Eiler's older friend and father figure Robert Little, the professor, paid $2,500 to Craig Long to refrain from pressing charges against Eiler. He pleaded not guilty to aggravated battery, paid a nominal fine, and walked. The incident was all but forgotten by the police for the time being. In 1981, Eiler met and fell in love with 20-year-old John Dobrovolskis, who I'm going to call John because I don't want to say that last name again. John lived with his wife and children on North Greenview Avenue in Chicago. John's wife was accepting of his being homosexual, and Eiler was permitted to live with the family during the week while he worked as a house painter. He returned to Robert Little's Terre Haute condo on the weekends, and on Saturdays he worked at a liquor store in Greencastle, Indiana. Eiler started murdering young men in 1982, it's believed, as his need to torture and kill escalated. He drove his Ford F-Series pickup on highways between Indiana and Illinois in connection with his cohabitating arrangements and his various jobs. Along the way, he picked up hitchhikers, male sex workers, and men at gay bars. He offered them drinks and often sedated them, so they barely knew what was happening to them and were powerless to resist. Sometimes he would offer them money for a sex act. He would then tie them up, torture them, beat and stab them, and dump them on the sides of roads near major interstates. Many were victims of overkill with vicious stab wounds to their heads after they were dead. Others were dismembered or disemboweled. Most were found with their pants down, and many were missing their shirts and wallets. This was why several of his victims were unidentified. Okay, so back to 1983 and the task force investigating the highway killer. They had a credible tip about Larry Eiler possibly being their man. When he was arrested after the traffic stop with the hitchhiker and questioned, Eiler denied killing anyone. He consented to a thorough search of his truck, and police found handcuffs, tools and implements, clothesline, surgical tape, and a bloody knife. This wasn't enough to hold Eiler as the highway killer, but they did obtain a search warrant for the condo where he lived on weekends with Robert Little. In his room there, they found a trove of evidence that circumstantially linked Eiler to the highway murders, things like receipts and credit card statements that put him in the suspected murder locations at the right times, and a hospital bill for stitches he'd received for a deep knife cut to the hand on the day that one of the stabbings had occurred. 
Police found additional evidence in the home he shared during the week with John and his family. Police knew that Eiler was responsible for as many as 20 murders at that point, but they still didn't have enough to charge him. He was released on October 4th and hired a heavy hitter attorney who filed a civil suit on Eiler's behalf against both the Indiana State Police and the Lake County Sheriff's Office, naming 11 defendants and claiming harassment and civil rights violations. The civil suit sought $250,000 in damages. Meanwhile, police were frantically working to get Eiler on something. They thought their best chance was to nail him for the murder of 28-year-old Ralph Calise, who had been found in a field in northeastern Illinois on August 3rd. Ralph had been stabbed 17 times and buried in a shallow grave with his pants around his ankles. At the scene, investigators collected fresh boot and tire print impressions that they believed came from the killer. And in the search of Eiler's condo, they had found boots that they believed had made the boot prints, and Eiler's non-matching tires could have made the tire tracks at Kalisa's scene. The FBI determined the boot and tire prints were a 100% match to Eiler's possessions, and 31-year-old Larry Eiler was charged with the murder of Ralph Kalise on October 29th. I'm not going to get into the complexities of this whole thing, but in essence, the case against Eiler was thrown out after the judge held that the evidence against him was the fruit of the poisonous tree. Judge William Block ruled that the Indiana State Police had not had probable cause to search Eiler's truck, and he was therefore detained illegally. All the evidence found as a result of this initial search had to be thrown out. This included the boot prints and tire tracks. And the judge ruled that the search warrant for the condo owned by Robert Little was insufficient, so anything found there was also inadmissible. The only evidence remaining to the police was the plaster casts of boot prints and tire tracks and Eiler's hair and blood samples. His bond was reduced from $1 million to an affordable $10,000. It was paid, and he was released on February 6, 1984. It was a major screw-up by the Indiana State Police, and it meant that Larry Eiler walked free to kill again. Prosecutors appealed Judge Block's ruling, but failed. Eiler moved to a new apartment in Chicago, largely financed by Robert Little. In August 1984, Eiler was arrested for the August 19th murder and dismemberment of 16-year-old sex worker Danny Bridges. He'd gotten the teen to the apartment where he was now living, stabbed and beat him to death, and cut him up in the tub. He carried the body parts to a dumpster in trash bags, but a janitor in the building named Joseph Bala found them. Bala had seen Eiler carrying the heavy bags, and another janitor saw Eiler placing them in a dumpster that was off-limits to tenants. He opened a bag and found a leg. Eiler's prints were all over the bags. Luminol in his apartment lit up, and Daniel's blood was found in numerous places throughout the residence. Receipts for a new hacksaw found in the apartment showed that Eiler had recently purchased it. Eiler was charged with murder on August 22, 1984, and held at the Waukegan, Illinois jail on a million dollars bond. This time, it did not go well for him. He pleaded not guilty, but he would never be free again. Eiler's trial commenced on July 1, 1986 in Cook County. Again, I'm not going to go into the whole trial, which was lengthy and involved, with multiple witnesses testifying against Eiler, such as Robert Little and Eiler's lover John, who had helped him clean up the scene, as well as four character witnesses testifying on Eiler's behalf, including his mother. In the end, Eiler was found guilty of the aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and the murder of Daniel Bridges. 
On October 3rd, Judge Urso sentenced Larry Eiler to death by lethal injection. Urso made the following statement, quote, The senseless and barbaric murder of a 16-year-old boy, a killing which was so brutal it defies description, shows me your complete disregard for human life. If there ever was a person or a situation for which the death penalty is appropriate, it is you. You are an evil person. You truly deserve to die for your acts. I thereby sentence you to death for the murder of Danny Bridges committed during the course of his aggravated kidnapping. End quote. After his conviction, Eiler was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. He faced more and more charges as other jurisdictions sought to hold him responsible for all his kills. One of these was the murder and mutilation of Stephen Agin. Eiler said he would plead guilty to his part in this killing, but maintained that Robert Little was a willing accomplice. Little was arrested, and Eiler testified against him at his trial, which commenced on August 11, 1991. A jury deliberated for four hours before finding Little not guilty on all charges. Meanwhile, Eiler was slapped with another 60 years for Agin's murder. Eiler's death sentence was appealed, as in Illinois, death penalty cases are automatically appealed to the state Supreme Court. Attorney Kathleen Zellner, a well-known appellate attorney, was assigned his case on November 5, 1990. Eiler did not want the death penalty, and he and Zellner came up with the idea to have him confess in detail to multiple murders in exchange for life without parole. Eiler and Zellner started compiling a list of the murders he'd committed, the dates, times, locations, and victims, and the circumstances of the victims' deaths. The list amounted to 21 slayings Eiler had committed that he had not already been charged with. Authorities in the 10 counties with suspected Eiler murders were receptive to the deal, anxious to close the cases and provide answers to the victims' families. But Jack O'Malley, the Cook County State's attorney, rejected Eiler's offer to negotiate, calling it revolting and repugnant. It was a stalemate. Then, in late 1993, Eiler became ill. He died of AIDS at the Pontiac Correctional Center on March 6, 1994, at age 41. On March 8, with Eiler dead just 48 hours, his attorney, Kathleen Zellner, called a press conference. She announced the release of a lengthy confession document written by her and Larry Eiler prior to his death. This was the detailed list of murders he admitted to committing between 1982 and 1984. He provided details only the murderer would know for all 21 homicides. Seventeen of these he committed alone. The other four, he claimed, were done with the assistance of Robert Little. He admitted to dumping many of the victims along roadways near major interstates, primarily U.S. 41 in Indiana and I-57 in Illinois, and maintained that he would bury Illinois victims in Indiana and Indiana victims in Illinois in order to obfuscate investigations into their deaths. After the press conference, Kathleen Zellner faxed the authorities in the counties where the confessed victims were, offering to meet with them to discuss what she knew. She later vowed publicly never again to represent a client she knew to be guilty. She said that she had begged and pleaded with Eiler to let her release the confession after his death. He reluctantly agreed, saying he was doing it for her. Okay, so why is all this important? Well, you might remember what this episode is about, the Jasper County Doe discovered near Rensselaer in October 1983. One of Eiler's confessions stated that he had killed a male teenager after picking him up on the weekend of November 20th, 1982, 
along U.S. Route 41 in the Vincennes area. He said he picked up the teen and they drove several hours north, and Eiler plied his intended victim with beer and Placidil, a sleeping aid, along the way. Once they reached Jasper County, the young man was semi-conscious. Eiler's confession stated he tied the victim to a tree, gagged him, stabbed him to death, and left his body in a field. Eiler's description of the murder matched what detectives knew to be true about Jasper County Doe's slaying. The problem was, Eiler claimed he didn't know his name. Eiler's confession to the Jasper County Doe slaying was believable to the investigators. It turned out that Eiler had met with Jasper County authorities in 1990 and worked with them to prepare a sketch of the young victim whose name he said he did not know. Jasper County Doe was attributed to Larry Eiler from that time on, but they still had no idea who he was. In 1986, three years after his scattered remains were found, most of the skeletal remains of Jasper County Doe were buried in a small wooden box at Sailor McKeever Cemetery in Rensselaer. Detective Ricker raised money for a granite grave marker that read, John Doe, 25 to 26 years old, approximate date of death, March 1982, interment date, April 22, 1986. He was buried, but he was never forgotten. New Jasper County Coroner Andrew Borsma took over the office in 1999 and discovered that there was still a box of bone fragments belonging to Jasper County Doe in evidence. For the next 21 years, he made it his mission to figure out who this young man was. He kept the case file with him at all times and reviewed it constantly. He met with Kathleen Zellner, Eiler's attorney, to see if she could help. He never got a single solid tip about the victim's identity. Starting in 2009, Borisma started working with ISP Detective Dave Andrews and the Newton County Coroner to try to identify the Indiana victims of Larry Eiler. They met monthly to compare notes on what they had uncovered. In 2013, they were still at it. They released forensic sketches of the two Newton does at this time, but the Jasper County doe was missing a facial segment part of his skull, so just a photo of, of the Zippo lighter was released with a request for information. In 2018, with significant advances in DNA technology having been made, Coroner Borsma obtained a disinterment order to exhume Jasper County doe. Forensic anthropologists retrieved the remains from the now-deteriorated wooden box, cleaned and cataloged the bones, and collected portions for DNA testing. Then Detective Andrews sent a femur section to the University of North Texas, which was able to obtain an STR profile of John Doe after a complex nine-month-long extraction process. The profile was entered into CODIS's Unidentified Human Remains database, and there were two possible candidates who came up due to some shared STR markers. One was in Saskatchewan, and the other was in South Carolina. DNA samples were obtained for both candidates, and both proved to be unconnected to Jasper County Doe. All of this took years, but it didn't really advance the case. Then, in January 2021, Brian Warders, a student intern at Redgrave Research Forensic Services, contacted Coroner Borsma and suggested that perhaps his organization could help identify Jasper County Doe. Redgrave Research Forensic Services was started by Lee and Anthony Redgrave, both of whom had worked at the DNA Doe Project for years before branching out on their own in 2018. Redgrave's head genealogist, Anthony Redgrave, was also a co-founder of the Trans Doe Task Force. This from their website, quote, 
The Trans-Doe Task Force finds and researches cases of LGBTQ plus missing and murdered persons, especially focusing on unidentified individuals who may have been transgender. The Trans-Doe Task Force advises and educates the public, media, and forensic professionals about the needs of and differences between trans-Doe cases and other Doe cases. The Trans-Doe Task Force can also assist law enforcement departments, medical examiners, and forensic anthropologists with getting their cases worked on by forensic genetic genealogists, and has a trans-led forensic genetic genealogy team in-house. LAMP, which stands for LGBTQ Plus Accountability for Missing and Murdered Persons, is the Trans-Doe Task Force database of missing and murdered and unclaimed LGBTQ Plus people, which was created to serve the community and attempt to match any unidentified people with missing people whose cases require LGBTQ Plus informed care and consideration, as well as providing case support for the families and friends of missing LGBTQ Plus people. End quote. The Transdoe Task Force had compiled a list of 175 cases worldwide which possibly involved unidentified LGBTQ plus missing and murdered people. One of those was Jasper County Doe, who they focused on because Larry Eiler was known to target men in the gay community. Andy Borsma happily accepted the offer of help and funded $2,500 of the cost out of his office's budget, with the rest being covered by a DOJ grant. The first step was creating a SNP profile for John Doe. His femur bone was sent to DNA Solutions, who extracted 1.12 nanograms of DNA, an absolutely minute amount, on the first attempt. That extract was sent to Hudson Alpha for DNA sequencing. In the meantime, in July 2021, Anthony Redgrave worked with Idaho State University Assistant Professor of Anthropology Dr. Samantha Blatt to create a forensic image of John Doe despite the remains being damaged and the mid-facial region of the cranium being missing. The image was released that month, and it was the first image based on John Doe's actual bone structure rather than Larry Eiler's recall. In September 2021, the DNA sequencing data was ready, and it was sent to Kevin Lord of Sabre Investigations for bioinformatics on September 8th. Redgrave prepared to start the genealogy research, staffing the case with 12 LGBTQ genealogists and researchers. By September 10th, Redgrave had a SNP profile uploaded to GEDmatch. There were 67 DNA relatives in the database. The top DNA relatives shared 110 centimorgans with John Doe, about 1.48% of the DNA. This is a half-second cousin or a second cousin once removed, generally. Matches 2 and 3 shared 95.6 and 86.5 centimorgans, respectively. Matches 4 to 10 were all in the 73 to 54 centimeter range. It was very promising. The genealogy team built a tree consisting of 10,000 family members, all the way back to ancestors in the 1700s. The ancestral marriage linking both sides of John Doe's family tree was revealed on September 15th, and that led to the identification of the Doe's likely grandfather. By the 18th, after six days of round-the-clock work, the Redgrave team had what they termed a candidate for identification. On the 20th, they reported their findings to Coroner Andy Borsma as a highly scientific tip. Their theory was that the John Doe's name was William Joseph Lewis. The position he occupied in the massive family tree aligned with the researchers' theory of where the John Doe fit in. And 
there were no proof-of-life records for William Joseph Lewis since 1982, and no death record either. He was the only person in the right position in the family tree who was totally unaccounted for. It was time to confirm Redgrave's theory. Coroner Borsma is also a Jasper County Sheriff's Special Deputy, so in that capacity he contacted the Sheriff's Department in Tomball, Texas, to track down the family of William Joseph Lewis. One of the Tomball detectives knew the family, and initiated contact and inquired as to whether they indeed had a missing person in their family of that name. She learned that they did. The family was initially hesitant to provide a DNA sample, a buckle swab, to confirm the identification, because they did not want their missing family member to be dead. But eventually, John Doe's suspected sister, Tammy, agreed to the test and was provided with an autosomal direct-to-consumer DNA test. Everyone anxiously awaited the results. On November 11th, the family was notified that Tammy's DNA test showed that she was a full sibling to Jasper County Doe. It was a match. Jasper County Doe's name was William Joseph Bill Lewis. Bill was born on October 13, 1963, to parents Benny Edward Lewis Sr. and Joe Vivian Smith, who had married in 1961. His family had moved to Indiana from Michigan. He was born in Peru, Indiana. Brian Warders, the Redgrave genealogist who was the team leader on this case, learned some information about Bill from his family. A post online that he made says, quote, William Joseph Bill Lewis, 19 years old, a linebacker on his high school football team, would work on cars, learned how to fight by watching Bruce Lee movies, but seldom got into trouble. Bill's siblings referred to him as quiet but loving, end quote. Bill played high school football in his high school team in Indiana, but broke his left femur and was forced to leave the team. He also left high school around this time. It's not clear what he did for work. Bill was last seen by his family in February 1982 at the funeral of a family friend in Houston, Texas. His plan was to hitchhike home. He often hitchhiked. It was a much more common mode of transportation in the early 80s than today. His family thought nothing of it. However, when he never showed up again, they reported him missing to the Miami County authorities. However, the missing persons report was vague and didn't align well enough with the Jasper County Doe characteristics to facilitate an identification. As Jasper County Coroner Andy Borsma later clarified, quote, everything sat at a standstill. Other than what identifying markers we had, which was a crooked tooth and the jaw, a silver crown or cap, that stuff was entered into the database that the state police and the FBI had, but none of the family had entered anything like that in his missing persons report. End quote. So, the few unique aspects of the Jasper County Doe were not mentioned in the missing persons report, and it led nowhere, even though Bill Lewis was in Indiana all those years under the name John Doe. More from Brian Warder's post, quote, Bill's mother passed away two years ago not knowing what had happened to her son. She had said that, even though I have eight children, I love each and every one of them. When one is missing, a piece of a mother's heart is missing, end quote. In fact, in the early 90s, Bill's mother had written to Unsolved Mysteries, begging the show to feature her missing son. Oxygen shared some parts of her letter. It said, quote, I don't know if he's alive or dead. If I just knew something, I could put my mind at ease. There isn't a day that goes by where I don't think about him. Since Bill disappeared, I've had an empty hole in my life. Jasper County Coroner Andy Borsma held a press conference on December 2nd, 2021, announcing the identification of Bill Lewis. 
Borsma said he had spent the past 21 years of his life committed to solving the case because, quote, this is somebody's kid. He wasn't alone in his resolve. Many, many people were in attendance at the presser who had worked on the case over the years. One of these was the original detective on the case, Paul Ricker. If you recall, Larry Eiler confessed that he killed a teenager in Jasper, Indiana, after picking him up hitchhiking on Route 41 in Vincennes. Detective Ricker spoke at the press conference and said he didn't have words to describe how he felt after all this time. He had been pondering the Jasper County Doe case for 28 years because the case really stuck with him. I'm tickled to death to have answers, Ricker said. Detective Ricker said that after Eiler originally mentioned a Jasper County victim, Ricker went to see Eiler in prison. Eiler wouldn't talk to him, but after his death, Kathleen Zellner confirmed the details of the crime, that Eiler really didn't recall the victim's name, and that Eiler had acted alone. Now, I want to state for the record that when I spoke directly to the coroner who closed this case, Andy Borsma, he told me in no uncertain terms that, in fact, the authorities believe that Eiler did indeed know Bill Lewis's name. He just refused to divulge it. For some reason, he relished the details about this murder and seemed to enjoy keeping the name of the victim to himself. Several of Bill Lewis's relatives were in attendance at the press conference. One was his nephew Joshua Shuck, who still resides in Peru, Indiana, even though the remainder of the family has relocated to Texas. He said that he wasn't born in time to meet his uncle Bill, but that, quote, my dad said he just disappeared. He was there one day and gone the next. He said his father, Bill's brother, always joked that the mob had killed Bill because his disappearance was that mysterious. Shuck said that both his aunts, Bill's sisters, had always hoped their brother would be found alive somewhere. They were taking the news that he had been killed by a serial killer pretty hard, but they were happy he'd never been forgotten. Shuck said, quote, It's rough, but the closure is nice. No one gave up, and they finally figured it out, end quote. He said his grandmother, Bill's mom, never accepted that her son was gone until the day she died in 2019. Joshua Shuck announced that the family was making arrangements to have Bill reinterred in a plot next to his father in Peru, Indiana. Coroner Borsma commented, quote, Hopefully, this will give the family a little bit of rest and comfort, knowing that we can return their brother's remains and uncle's remains back to them to be placed in the cemetery at home in Peru, end quote. Since then, that has happened. In a small ceremony attended by the family, some of the investigators who helped bring Bill home, and representatives from the genealogy team who identified him. So Jasper County Doe, a.k.a. William Joseph Lewis, has been returned to his family. But what about the other unidentified Eiler victims? Remember that the names of two of the Newton County Does remained unknown. Well, one was identified in April 2021. His name was John Brandenburg Jr., a 19-year-old Kentuckian who vanished from the Chicago area in 1983. He was identified by the DNA Doe Project. The final Newton County victim, a young black male, remains unidentified. He was estimated to be just 15 to 18 years of age. Forensic genealogy is currently being used to try to identify him. Coroner Borsma tells me that he absolutely believes that Larry Eiler has additional victims. And for those of you who are wondering about the allegations Eiler made that his friend, Professor Robert Little, was involved... Borsma has evidence that while Little may not actually have committed the murders, he was involved in some of them, and was instrumental in Eiler blossoming into the serial killer he became. Little is currently in the wind, 
He moved out of state soon after his acquittal, and no one knows where he is. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.